Hey, sorry about that. So I discussed the podcast, the last podcast, with a couple of you, and I received some really excellent feedback. And I was thinking about it for a while, and originally I was going to say something like, I think of the podcast as a dialogue where we're struggling to discover the truth together. I was going to say, I'm not trying to give prescriptive advice. I'm not, I don't think I know all the answers. I don't think I know the truth, but I'm looking for it. I was going to say, please keep the feedback coming. And then I watched the movie Eighth Grade. And I'm Kayla. I'm struggling while clueless. And these podcasts are the same as her videos. So that, so that's my disclaimer. See the movie. Anyway, some of the feedback was around this metaphor of the target I gave, this incremental approach to practicing empathy, where it starts with you, and then it moves to your family, and then society or your tribe, and then humanity. And the whole metaphor was a mistake. Just throw away the whole thing. I made the exact same error I accuse others of making. In my search for a heuristic, in my search for a simple rule that would help me model reality, I oversimplified reality. I tried to make messy reality conform to my neat little model. And, th- <laughs> and thank goodness you guys corrected me. The first mistake I made, and I'm sure I won't get them all, but the first mistake is that if I gave the impression that this incremental approach means you shouldn't try to be empathetic towards everyone, that's the exact opposite of the approach that I was recommending. What I think works is trying to connect with the person right in front of you whether that's yourself, a family member, a friend, or a stranger. Try to connect to them as an individual. Not, tr- not reducing them, but trying to see their complexity. What I think doesn't work is feeling good about yourself for thinking you love an abstract concept that requires no action, no sacrifice, while at the same time treating real people like oversimplified stereotypes or members of a group or based on their education or based on what they do for a living. Second mistake, my idea was that it was usually easier to control negative emotions around family than around a stranger. So, you know, practice with family first. That's a mistake. It's often harder to practice empathy with family than with a stranger. The The stakes are higher. There are real consequences to this interaction. There's more baggage. All the unresolved issues and tensions that for years maybe have been pushed under the carpet, they will find the worst possible time to come up again. Let's see, what else? Um, Expectations are higher. With a stranger, maybe it's easy to be empathetic with them. Because you know you're going to see them for five minutes and then never again. It's a low-stakes interaction. And, you know, I really need to do a better job of not confusing civility with empathy. Politeness is a low bar, especially in a, you know, a country where people are generally polite. 
And it's not the same thing as trying to really understand a person, understand how they think and why. To me, at least, true empathy is really terrifying because for a moment, I become someone else. I become the other person. And, you know, what if that experience, that insight changes me? It actually changes me. That change is scary. You know, my ego fights change tooth and nail. So being open is hard. It's, it's so much easier. It's so much easier to dismiss other people, you know, overly simplify them, reject them as evil. But again, at least in my experience, whenever I dismiss someone or reduce them, the universe smacks me in the back of the head. And I think Peterson's approach is useful here. Assume every person you meet knows the one thing you need to know to make your life better. And it's your job to find it. Another mistake I made. So I had this idea that it was easier to see a family member as an individual than a stranger, just because we know more about them. Maybe the stranger feels different to us, and so it's harder for us to understand that they are an individual with you know a very complex personality. Again, that was a mistake. I think often, at least I do this, we start to put family members into boxes defined by the relationship. You know, they lose their complexity and instead they become mom or sister or son. And on the other hand, we can meet a stranger and sometimes we can quickly learn how unique they are because we have no preconceived notions. And so I want to give a couple examples of that. There's this amazing site online called Humans of New York, where the creator does many interviews with people on the street. And these interviews are wonderful because they expose depth and complexity and nuance very quickly. And you get a sense of the complexity and the individuality of the people he talks to. And I really think that that seeing a lot of these interviews quickly helps to break through prejudice because you realize how different people are and that what makes them special, what makes them unique, are not the characteristics that are easy to understand. It's not their gender, it's not their race, it's not their country of origin. It's the unique experiences they have that have really shaped their, who they are. So I want to read just two quick summaries of interviews that he did off Humans of New York to give you a sense of this flavor. Um, here's the first. Quote, My family made me come, but I hate it. I can't get a job because I have a lot of accent. I was an assistant manager at a big jewelry store in the Dominican Republic. Now I clean tables. We had a big house there. Now we live in a small apartment. If I was home right now, I'd be in a very nice restaurant on the beach laughing with my friends, not sitting alone on a bench trying to learn English. There I was a princess. Here I am an immigrant, a servant. End quote. Number two, quote, not only did I lose my brother that day, but I lost my mother too. Life from then on was about her suffering. She stayed home all day. She cried. She didn't pay much attention to us. Nothing was allowed to be more important than her suffering. Nobody else was allowed to have important problems. Her pain had to be worse than everyone else's. She preferred it that way. 
end quote. And so um, I think these are just fantastic. And when I'm riding in Lyft or an Uber, I try to talk to the drivers. And I, I try to do something similar to what he did, does with strangers on the street, which is try to get to know them as well as I can, as quickly as I can. Because I find that, again, that that sampling is just unbelievably, well, it's fun and it's rewarding and I really enjoy the glimpses I get into people's lives. And so I have, you know, pages and pages of these interviews that I've done, um, the notes of my interviews. I'm going to read a couple of them. And I, th- I think they're very upbeat. And I, I think they're very... They're very inspiring at some level. So I'm going to read, I think, five. Here's the first one. They're not quotes. They're more notes. Number one, originally from the Ivory Coast, he spends 10 months a year in the United States as a long-haul truck driver. Then he goes either to the Ivory Coast or to France, where his wife is, for two months a year. He was going to culinary school in the States, but decided it was too expensive for what he was getting out of it, and decided to work in the kitchens instead. He started as a dishwasher, but the chef saw he could cut onions and promoted him to food prep. He's learning reality on the job, not theory in the classroom. America is more about what you can do than France. France is about credentials. Number two, a man from Afghanistan who came to the United States just after 9-11 Far from that making his life more difficult, he was welcomed with open arms, quickly married, joined the army, and went right back to his homeland as a translator. He had a price on his head. He came back to the United States several years later, had four children, and moved to Oakland. He was a cab driver, and like most Uber drivers, says he enjoys setting his own hours. He is enormously proud of his family and the joyful noise of his home. Number three a Belarusian. He was describing the mockery of elections back home, describing how all the jobs pay the same, a couple hundred dollars a month, and how an apartment costs the same amount and other prices are similar to those in the United States. How health care is free, but doctors reply to serious issues by just telling people to not jostle the body part. How he's lonely here since he won the immigration lottery and his family is still back home. Number four, This man came from the Philippines 10 years ago to provide a better education for his 8-year-old son. He had a rice farm back home, and he had to arrange for someone to take care of it. He goes back once a year, mostly to see the in-laws. He likes the school he sends his kids to, but he says rich kids feel a lot of pressure, although he thinks his kids are okay. He was a care keeper for a year, and when the man died, he fell down and started driving for Lyft. He does 20 trips a day. That's 7,000 in the last year. Out of those 7,000, he's only had 20 rude customers. Number five, a man from Mississippi. He played football in high school and is still so popular in his hometown that he feels he can't live there anymore. He went to Old Miss and then decided to travel, went down to Ecuador and decided to go to an ayahuasca ceremony. He did this four times in 10 days. Had an experience the first time and the last time. A trillion eyes looking at him, repeating, love conquers all, a sense of unity. He believes the drug is sentient. It said it made him more humble. He traveled around, 
helping Latin American hostels with IT and their web pages, then came back to the States. He said it was a shocking transition. America is frenetic, hectic, everyone lives to work. Planning on going back to Mexico for a while for a startup. Okay, that's it. A while back, I sent some of these to a friend of mine, and I thought his comment was really good. He said, essentially, these are great. Who needs philosophers or self-help writers? We just need to hear from real people. And that idea really stuck with me, and I really agree with it. And I have a theory. The theory is the best way to create empathy is to share the most personal parts of ourselves, our deepest, darkest secrets, and most embarrassing stories. Yet, these are the secrets and stories that we work the hardest to never reveal, because we're scared. We're scared to share them. These parts of ourselves that we feel guilt about or shame. Our, our soft underbelly, as it were. And how messed up is this situation? The things that would connect us are the hardest things for us to share. But when we do share, I think the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment fade away. They diminish because everyone has those deep, dark secrets, those embarrassing stories. And so when we tell people them, they don't spit on us like we're afraid they're going to. They don't shun us. They don't turn away. They empathize. They say, oh, gosh, you know, I've made mistakes too. I didn't realize this person had also made mistakes. We're quite similar after all. And I think that's a deep truth. Suffering is a human universal. Even the person you think has everything and has nothing to worry about, his or her life is filled with stress and fear and the same problems that you have and that I have and that everyone has. But it's really hard to realize that in a vacuum. It's really important to share those stories so that we can understand that our similarities are far more important than our differences. Anyways, I have to bail, but I'll catch you later.